Uh, Holy Spirit, I, I thank you you're with us, and I thank you you don't abandon us in these moments. Lord, we so thank you for providing us with your word, with your truth, with our Bible. And we pray right now that by your Holy Spirit, you, you will speak to us and teach us. Lord, inspire and illuminate this truth. Help us to believe it and to live by it, by your Spirit's power and enabling. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So far in this series, and uh, the little leaflet might have come around to you by now, we've looked at a number of things, but two of the things we've looked at are these. In God's beautiful plan for human sex and sexuality, we've discovered that God created us, male and female, equal, absolutely equal, but also different, and therefore complementary in the way we're to work together to bring God's glory uh, to bear. And we've also looked, number two, at how God has created sex as his wedding present, his gift on that married day for uniting a husband and a wife in a deep, in a profound way, in this secure, loving context of lifelong covenant we call marriage. They're two of the things we've looked at so far. This is the good news of God's beautiful plan for human sex and sexuality. And our question, our headline, our title today is, well, is it, what I've just described there, is it really good news for everybody? It's worth pointing out again, as we have done in previous weeks, that through this series, we are talking to Jesus followers. We don't expect people who aren't following Jesus to follow his teaching. We might love it when they do, but particularly in our day, in our culture and climate, we, we would be surprised if many people did. We're speaking to Jesus' followers about following Jesus, but if you're not following Jesus here today, we're glad you're here. And we hope that somehow through this series, through today, you will see something of the beauty and the wisdom of God's created design that will woo you and attract you. We trust also you'll see something as you get to know us of the wonderful thing that is God's people, the church. And whilst we're a flawed version of it, God is doing something among us. And we trust you'll see something of that beauty and wisdom too. And through both, you'll be persuaded to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. As we've looked at this plan of God, I must conclude that if everybody were to live according to God's plan, this world would be much better for it. Many of the evils, many of the problems associated with our modern world would, I think, be eradicated if everyone lived this way. Things such as rape and sex trafficking, things such as divorce, sexism, homophobia, pornography, revenge porn would be done away with if everybody lived according to God's way. But you might say, Tim, is it really that simple? Is God's wonderful plan for sex and sexuality really good news for everybody? There are lots of people, even some Christians, who think this message, this teaching, isn't good news for everybody. What about, for example, single people who can't, who don't want to, or haven't had the opportunity to get married? 
Is this really good news for them if we're denying them the opportunity for a sexual relationship? What about people who are same-sex attracted? By saying that God's created and designed sex for marriage between one man and one woman, what does that mean for people who would describe themselves as gay or lesbian? Is it really good news if we're denying them sexual activity, romantic love, marital companionship? A useful title. Is this really good news? Some go a step further. They say, actually, this teaching of God's plan can cause mental health problems, even lead some to suicidal thoughts. Vicki Beeching, a well-known Christian songwriter and worship leader, came out as gay in an article in The Independent in 2014 under the headline, Church Teaching is the Reason I Live in Shame. She has written a book called Undivided, and in her book she dedicates it to the memory of a, of a young girl called Lizzie Lowe. Lizzie Lowe, tragically at the age of 14, committed suicide because she feared telling her Christian community she was gay. Now, Vicky, in her opening chapter, goes on to explain the wrestle she had between her faith and a desire to follow Jesus and these feelings that she had towards people of the same gender as her. And she says that she came within inches of throwing herself in front of a moving train. But can this teaching really be good news for people like Vicky, people like Lizzie? I have to admit that much, if not the vast majority of my material here today is drawn from somebody called Andrew Bunt. Now, Andrew is from one of the New Ground churches down in Hastings, King's Church, and he has publicly uh, described the fact that he experiences same-sex attraction. So for him and people like him, this is a personal question, not just a hypothetical question. Yet he's decided, and many others like him, to live as a single and celibate follower of Jesus. And he admits sometimes that life is painful and difficult for him. But he would say that yes, this beautiful plan of God's for sex and sexuality is good news. Even for me, he would say, for everyone. Or rather, more completely, he would say, yes, this is good news, but... Yes, but, yes, it is good news for everybody, but the church has a long way to go if they're to help everyone live out and experience this as good news for them. And really, that's my focus for today. How can we, the church, live out in such a way that this is good news for everyone, that it becomes possible and plausible whether you're opposite sex or same-sex attracted, whether you're married or single, whether you're young or you're old. Firstly, just a few things I think we need to do as church, as believers who are following God. Firstly, we must listen. We must be a listening church, listening to those who say, it doesn't feel like good news to me. We need to acknowledge what they say and their reasons they give. We can't overlook people like Lizzie, people like Vicky, who struggle to reconcile these feelings they have and their desire to follow Jesus. We can't overlook research findings like these that conclude that young people who would describe themselves as lesbian and gay and also say that religion is important to them 
are 38% more likely to have suicidal thoughts than their non-religious counterparts. 52% amongst the girls. Somehow in the mix, is there's faith and there's these same-sex attractions. It's, it's, it's a pressure point for many people, including young people. We must listen. Secondly, as church, as believers, we, we, must, we must acknowledge, we must acknowledge that we collectively, we personally have not always got it right. We've not always accepted, loved, cared, understood, tried to understand the experiences that other people are going through. If you've been hurt by Christians, by the church, or maybe even this church in this whole area, I want to say, we're sorry. I'm sorry. God loves you. Be assured of that. And we, his church, also love you. And thirdly, so we're listening, we're acknowledging, we we must improve. We must get better. There must be some change if we're going to make it possible and plausible for you, for all, to live and experience God's plan as he's designed for sex and sexuality as good news, because it really is. So just to break down what I'm going to look at here, we're going to look at the yes, it is good news, and we're going to look at the but, how do we change? Firstly, looking at the yes, this is good news. I believe it is good news for everybody, like Andrew Bunt does. And therefore, if you boil it all down, what am I saying is good news? I'm saying that living a life that is single and celibate is good news. That's what I'm saying. And I want to give you a few reasons why I would say that with conviction. Firstly, let's look at Jesus' life. Jesus, we know, was born of a virgin, and he himself died a virgin. He was the perfect representation of God in human form. He was also the most complete, the most fulfilled, the most satisfied and secure human in history, and he was single, and he was celibate. Secondly, let's look at Jesus' teaching. Quincy already, a couple of weeks ago, opened up Matthew chapter 19 for us, drew out all sorts of very helpful things. Uh, Let's look at it again, Matthew chapter 19. This is the occasion when the Pharisees try to catch Jesus out with a trick question about the legitimate grounds for divorce. It was the hot topic of the day. It might not be now, but let's go there. And Jesus' response to that trick question wasn't to go back to the law of Moses. It was to leapfrog that and go right back to the very, very beginning of creation. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the creation of male and female, Adam and Eve. And Jesus explains how having been united by God in marriage, then then mankind must not separate except where there's sexual immorality. And his disciples are kind of trying to get to grips with this. They're struggling here. They may think he's gone a little over the top. And maybe as an attempt to shock him into toning down his answer, they declare in verse 10, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. That's their conclusion. And in essence, Jesus said, well, yeah. Let's pick it up from verse 11, Matthew 19. Not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it has been given. 
For there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. There are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So of all the conclusions you can draw from that long passage, and there are many, we mustn't miss the fact that Jesus here is endorsing singleness. Singleness as an equally valid way of glorifying God alongside marriage. As well as those for whom singleness is the only option, he says here, look, some, some are going to voluntarily choose singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Their way of living under God's rule, under his order, their way of best serving him as king. And Jesus says, look, if you can receive this, receive it. If you could, you should. And it was a radical teaching then, and it's a radical teaching now, because the world continues to rubbish the single celibate option. You don't hear it promoted much. Quite the opposite in our culture in our day. The suggestion really is, if you're living that way, that something is wrong with you would go the argument implicitly, perhaps, maybe even more blatantly. And sometimes, even within the church, we can too, maybe implicitly, downgrade the validity of singleness. Maybe sometimes with our well-meaning, perhaps, but ham-fisted ways of trying to pair people up, we're not actually endorsing singleness alongside marriage as a way of living under God's rule. This is what Jesus was teaching. Oh, and by the way, the teaching carries on. It echoes throughout the rest of the New Testament. Listen to how Paul speaks to the church in Corinth, that sex-obsessed culture. He endorses singleness by saying things like this. I wish all of you were like I am, says Paul, referring to his singleness in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7. Going on, we read, now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. He goes on to suggest actually singles have an opportunity to be solely concerned for the things of God and how to please the Lord rather than also how to please your spouse. Let's not get in the ins and outs of it. You can read the rest of that chapter. It's a very dense one with all sorts of great things in it. But what he is doing is endorsing singleness uh, alongside marriage as a valid way of expressing faith and life in Christ. And thirdly, a third reason I must mention this is our eternal state. Yes, marriage is to be lifelong till death do us part, but therefore it is only momentary. We've already, already been reminded of the eternity that is ahead of us if we're in Christ with him. And this, this life will be but moments in the scheme of things. You see, there's only one marriage in heaven. And it won't be yours, except that collectively we will be the bride of Christ. We won't need marriage anymore. We won't have marriage anymore. I know it's a funny thing to think about if you are married. Well, yeah, I, I know it, but yeah, because the glory of God will be there manifest for us all to see. We won't need examples of it like we have on earth to point us towards it. We'll have the real deal. We will be married together as the church, God's bride to Christ. 
So individually, Jesus said, you're going to be like the angels. Matthew 22, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So that's just my way of explaining that, yes, I do believe that this plan we've been looking at together over these weeks that God has instigated for sex and sexuality is good news for everyone because singleness is good, whether you are opposite sex attracted or same sex attracted. But there is this but. We must look at the but. We've got to ask, well, if it's good news, then why doesn't everybody experience it as good news? Why are some committed followers of Jesus not experiencing it as good news? Why do some even view it as a toxic thing, leading to mental health and suicidal thoughts? We've got to look at how we do church and whether we're making it plausible and possible to be single and celibate amongst us. This is an analogy that Andrew Bunt uh, uses, which I think is really helpful. And he, he, he talks about a roof and four walls. And the roof, if you like, is God's plan for sex and sexuality. It's a beautiful roof. But imagine a roof, however well it's been crafted, whatever wonderful materials have been used, however artistic and glorious it looks, it is useless as a roof on the floor. It needs four walls to hold it up. And as well as this teaching, God, through the word of God, has given us teaching on all sorts of subjects. Loads of other stuff is in this book. And we need to build our lives and build Christian community and church together in a way that holds up the whole truth. Then we will have the walls that this roof can sit upon and not only look good, but have some practical benefit. Provide an environment where people are protected where people are provided for, where people can prosper. So let me tell you what I'm talking about. These four walls in this case are these. Identity, love, family, and discipleship. Each of these, in a way, is a response to a common objection to God's plan, as we've been looking at. And I'll highlight those objections as we go. But I also want to really draw out the the radical implications for us in our Christian lives and in building church together. And I am at this point particularly preaching to everybody. If you're a Christian here today, if you're part of this church or another church, whether you're married or not, this this is part of your responsibility. You might be thinking, well, I'm married, thank you very much. This doesn't apply to me. Yeah, it does. Because we all together need to build these walls for God's community to bear the weight of this beautiful plan that God has given us. So let's look at each in turn. Firstly, identity. And this really is in response to a common objection that what I've been talking about here is cruel because we're not allowing people to express their true self. So this is how it might be articulated. If being gay is fundamental and core to who I am, so says the argument, then I'll only be satisfied if I can embrace and express that in how I am living. You see, the view of our society is that your sexuality is intrinsic to your identity. That being gay or straight or bisexual or asexual or pansexual is is core and fundamental to who you are, to your being. But for us believers, for Christians, Our sexuality 
isn't part of our identity. You see, for Christians, our identity doesn't come from within. It's not about how we're feeling. It's not what's going on inside of us. It's not even the labels or the descriptions that other people would use for us. It comes from God. Our identity is based on what he says about us. Now, I could have chosen a whole host of verses here, but let's look at Romans 8, verse 16, one that I particularly thought was helpful here. It's about us being God's children if we're believers in Jesus. It says that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit himself, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, that we are God's children. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, that is who you are. We've been singing about it beautifully It's who I am. I'm loved. I'm a child of God. It's based on what he said and what what he has done for me, not on what I feel or what's going on inside of me. I'm made in the image of God. Yes, I was loved before the foundation of the world. Yes, and now by faith in Christ, I am a child of the king. I belong to him. I'm adopted. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. I now relate to God as my heavenly father. I'm a child of his. And nothing can remove it or shake it or end it. It's eternal. And that can be you here today. And you may also feel same-sex attracted. Let me suggest to you that that describes how you are, not who you are. It describes an aspect of your life's experience, not an aspect of your life's identity. We must understand the difference because it has significant implications. Therefore, it's not something you have to act on or express in order to be fulfilled, in order to be true to yourself. And actually, just by the way, I think that's really helpful language to use. Being same-sex attracted rather than as gay or lesbian. I'm not going to argue too much about it, but I think it's helpful. Because a same-sex attraction describes how you are quite clearly. Where often, as nouns, the word gay, etc., is infers something more fundamental about your identity. So the language is helpful when we use it that way. You see, for any of us, if we base our identity on our internal feelings or on other people's labels, we'll always be insecure as a person because those things change and flux. But identity in God is stable. It's secure. It's immovable. No matter how you feel, No matter what other people say, you are still a child of God. We have a hallelujah for child of God. Can we? You're a child of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you. I know you're with me, really. Therefore, there's a really important implication, church. We each need to make sure that we're defining and rooting our identity in Christ. That's our responsibility, each of us. If we're going to therefore help others, maybe those who are same-sex attracted, to do the same, 
It needs to be a cultural thing. It needs to be the norm here. That that's how we do. That's the journey we're on. That's what we're pursuing, understanding and taking hold of. Our identity in God. But the reality is, unfortunately, that many Christians don't do that. They find their identity still in other things, perhaps in relationships. I'm a mother, I'm a brother, I'm a boyfriend. Yeah, you might be, but is that core to who you really are, the essence of you? You might find your identity in your job. I'm a barrister, I'm a banker, I'm a builder, I'm a businessman. Yeah, yeah, but don't don't make that your identity. That's what you do. That's what God's gifted you. We may be in for a moment. Some of us, we define our identity and our pursuits. I'm a musician, I'm a mountaineer, I'm a movie lover. Yeah, but don't, don't define yourself on those things. Some of us, even in this environment, we may define ourselves based on our spiritual gift. I'm a, I'm a pioneer in God. I'm a prayer warrior. I'm a prophetic type. Yeah, yeah, but don't, don't root your identity in that. The test would come. How would you cope if those things were removed from you? If they were taken away? How would you deal with that? Would you be overwhelmed in loss? Well, it's possibly, therefore, you're rooting too much in that. It's a thing. It's temporary, it's passing, it's God-given for a moment, perhaps. Would it shatter your sense of personal identity if those things were no longer part of you? Now, I have been impressed uh, with many of the interviews I've read about Justin Welby, the current Archbishop of Canterbury, over the last couple of years. And some of the things that particularly caught my eye is when he expresses his just simple but resolute confidence in who he is as a child of God, full stop. What if you weren't the bishop anymore? Well, well, I'm a child of God. It was a discovery that his, who he thought was his biological dad wasn't his biological dad. It was someone else. Late in life, he discovered this. And okay, that's got, phew, got to get used to that. But it doesn't, didn't shake him. It didn't faze him. Because first and foremost, he saw himself as a child of God. And when we all do this, when that is what we do together, then our encouragement to anybody, whatever their challenge, including whether it's same-sex attraction, will be, come on, it's possible, it's plausible, you can do the same, alongside me, alongside us. That's the first wall we need in place. Let's look at number two, love. You see, a common objection to this teaching is that it's cruel to deny people their legitimate need for sexual relationship because we're condemning them to loneliness, to intimacy, lacking loneliness in a loveless environment. And the message of the world would say, whether it's through dating shows, whether it's through the plots of films or song lyrics, that unless you're in a romantic relationship, unless possibly you're having sex, you're not ever going to feel loved. That's the message of the world. You won't be satisfied. You won't be complete as a person. It's there. And sometimes as well, the message from the church is not too dissimilar. We want to have a high view of marriage. Of course we do. But we don't want to imply anything else about uh, another option being less satisfying or uh, filled with love. You see, the world's formula is that love equals sex. But that's a lie. That is not true. Yes, we were created with this legitimate need for human love. We see that in the Garden of Eden. We looked at it. It wasn't until uh, God had created a world where there was a human loving interaction that he said, that's very good. 
We need it. That is our legitimate need. That's hardwired into us. But sex is not the only way we can experience and express genuine, real, fulfilling love. And anything other than that is a lie. When Jesus was teaching on love, it's really interesting to see what example he referred to. He doesn't go to sex or marriage. Let's look at John chapter 15. He said this, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. The greatest example of love in this world, if I'm going to try and describe my kind of love, he goes to friendship. There's no hint of romance. There's no hint of sexual activity going on there. The disciple John is often described as as the one whom Jesus loved, unashamedly in Scripture, many times. And he was the one who lent his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Jesus, we know, deeply loved his friend Lazarus, and he wasn't afraid of showing his emotions publicly. Similarly, let's read how David speaks of his friendship with Jonathan in 2 Samuel 1. I'm distressed for you, brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. You see, there was nothing, and we're very quick to see the innuendo in that. We've been conditioned, and those other examples. But there was, there's nothing homoerotic in that statement. Because true love doesn't equal sex. They are different things. The contemporary bromance narrative says it's impossible for two guys, two male friends, to be f- complete and fully experience love. Either it's going to lead to some kind of awkwardness uh, and kind of backing off in their relationship, or it requires some kind of sexual activity for it to be kind of solidified. But that's not true. That's not what these biblical examples testify to. By the way, uh, if you are married, developing friendship will be the definition of your love life. It's... It's, a, it's, a, it's an exclusive best friend environment. And that's the pursuit that marriage op- opportunity provides. As I say, Andrew Bunt, who helped here with some of the material, he says that for him, his real breakthrough moment came when he realized his fundamental need was, wasn't sex, it was love. And when he got that, it made all the difference because as a same-sex attracted Christian, thinking that it was sex he needed led him to a dead end. Where can I go? But realizing it was love he needed then provided him with a way forward. Hope, because God has created other ways of experiencing and expressing love that doesn't involve romance or sexual activity. Therefore, church, again, this is our implication for every single one of us. We need to excel at loving one another. I know we say it so often, it's so easy to come out with a command of Jesus like we've got here in John 15. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And we kind of hear it, but don't hear it. But we must embrace this command. We've got Jesus as our model. His love was costly. He just washed their feet of all the stench and dirt. He was just about to die for them. There was nothing romantic about any of that. Yet it was pure love, the kind of love he wanted us to then model after him. And when we're that type of church, and we're growing to be that kind of church, I believe, 
when everyone gets to be loved and to express love like Jesus, then across the generations, across the ethnicities, across the occupation and the income grades, across the marital statuses, will provide hope, genuine hope, for those who are single and celibate amongst us. Wall number two, wall number three is family. The common objection to God's plan for sex and sexuality, as we've outlined over these weeks, is that it's cruel because we're denying some people the opportunity of family and to have children. We're forcing them into isolation and therefore loneliness. But the Bible says that church is family. And that's not just a nice idea. That's not just something we quite like as a particular church. No, that's fundamental to our identity as God's people. Because, see, having each been adopted by God as his sons and daughters, we now find we have siblings, one to another. That's the definition of our relationship with each other in the context of church. And so we are family, but we need to live out being family if we're all to experience it. So therefore, each of us, we must examine what's our view of family life. Maybe you're in a household with others. Maybe there's mom, there's dad, maybe there's some kids, maybe there's a few of you there. But we can be quite blinkered, can't we? Whatever our composition. Uh, this is the nuclear family. This is, this is the, yes, it is the priority, but we, 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 God wants us to open up here. To welcome others into our family lives. There was an occasion when uh, Jesus' family, perhaps somewhat concerned for him, uh, went to the house where he was teaching. But it was so crowded with people, they couldn't get in to get to him. And so they passed the message on through others, and it got to Jesus, Mark chapter 3, your mother and brothers are outside, Jesus. They're looking for you. And you might expect, oh, well, Jesus would get up and go and find out what they had to say. But he doesn't. He stays still. And he says this, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looks around the room at those sitting there and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Wow. Now, let's not hear what he's not saying. He's not dismissing biological families. While hanging on the cross, there was his mother and he was still caring for her. He said, John, look after her as your own. Mum, John, he's your new son. Yeah, he sorted it out right there. In the pain and suffering of it all, he was looking after his family. But he expands our understanding of family. Our view of it is different now. We've got more family allegiances, more family responsibilities than we might have realized otherwise. And he wants us to live in family. Whether we're married, single, divorced, whether we're parents, grandparents, or childless, because that's who we are. And we've got to work this out, church. We've got to grow in working this out. Let me give you one example. Let's do normal life together. Let's do the normal stuff, but invite one another in. What do I mean? Well, the stuff you normally do. Just get others in on it. Saturday night, eating pizza, watching some mindless telly. Invite someone round. Have your pizza and watch your escapism together. We're going for a shopping trip, Blue Water, Ikea. You know, it's not very interesting. Yeah, but why not? Why not? Except somebody might really enjoy coming with you as part of that trip. 
Midweek Wednesday, well, it's just a normal routine. It's just, just a bit of any old tea, it's a bit of homework. It's a, it's a bit of reading bedtime stories to the kids. Well, why not? Why not invite people into that? Be part of that experience. It might seem boring to you, but it, it, it gives us context for being and living as family together. Oh, we're just going to kill in some time Sunday afternoon. The kids are going crazy. We're just taking them down a park for a bit of a swing, kick a ball. Who's coming with you? Who have you invited? It really is a win-win-win situation. Parents, you'll get some respite. Your kids will benefit. I think one of our experiences has been the more people we invite into our home, into our family environment, the more our children have benefited. We're now looking back on those 20 years and seeing just how much, how influential that's been. Thank you, Lord. And it's a win for others. They get to experience mixing together. But it's not just about those with little kids and those who are young adults in the 20s. It's, it's the whole mix of us, single parents, older singles, childless couples, empty nesters. We're all in it together. Let's express that. Let's be that to each other. How many front door keys have you got cut? One for an emergency? One for the neighbor in case you're locked out? I think we should have more keys cut because they should be in the pockets of more of us because we've got to that stage. We're family. Come round when we're not there. Just come in the door. Or maybe not first. <laughs> and, and our fridges should be... Ru- Who's been raiding the fridge? I'm getting to that stage now, you know. Is Hannah back from university? Who's been, what, I thought we bought six of those. I, I, it should be more often than just when our empty nesting children have come home that we're saying our fridge has been raided. Because we should be living as family. Yeah, not first. Uh, this is why we're so committed to life groups. I know the Tuesday night context isn't the be-all and end-all of every part of being family together, but it gives us a base. It gives us this random, eclectic mix of people who are nothing like us to begin to be family with throughout the week, over the months, across the year. We've got to each play our part here, and our fourth wall is discipleship. You see, the common objection to this teaching is, well, it's just not fair. It's not fair for same-sex attracted people to be denied romance, sex, and marriage. And actually, lurking behind that is a view that following Jesus should be easy, should be pain-free. But that's a lie. I'm sure that the reality for a Christian who is same-sex attracted and wants to follow Jesus, you know, even if they're doing all they can to root their identity in Christ, even if they're experiencing love and family in the context of church, there's going to still be days when it's tough and hard and difficult. I get it, or I try to get it. But it doesn't mean that's wrong. Because the reality should be for every one of us as Christians following Jesus, that there are times that are painful and difficult. Three of the Gospels tell us about Jesus. He explained, uh, explaining that by following him, we're going to have to follow his path, which is going to include suffering and death and resurrection. I mean, the disciples are getting their heads around this. Jesus, really? Are you going to die? Really? I don't... And then come to, what's going to happen? What? what? And then he says this in Matthew 16. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. See, the Christian life is following Jesus on that kind of path, the path of suffering and the path of death. And then resurrection life. 
We are therefore called to deny ourselves, our wants, our desires, our preferences, our plans. It's about choosing to lose your life. Daily taking up your uncomfortable cross. It's a process of dying. But in doing so, coming to life and finding the real and the eternal and the best life that's in Jesus. And each of us will have a set of things where that, is, that pinches, and we should have, where it's going to be painful and a challenge to work it out, but it will be worth it. That's discipleship for all of us. And if we've opted for some pain-free, easygoing, pseudo-discipleship, then it ain't going to make any sense when we're calling some to live in a way that feels really hard for them. They're not going to, it's not going to be easy. Not helping them. I know we're going through our 40 days of discipleship at the moment. I trust you're enjoying it and learning some things about the Bible and the spirit and prayer and other things. But unless there's some death going on in your life, it ain't discipleship. What are you denying yourself of? What does your cross look like? Whether you're married or not, it may mean dealing ruthlessly with some of these sex and sexuality issues. Are you dealing ruthlessly, radically, with pornography, with lust, with masturbation, with flirting, with crude language, with inappropriate relationships in your life? This would be some death for all of us and on other areas. We each need to live radical disciples of Jesus in every area of life. And when we do that, it won't seem unfair. It won't seem unreasonable. It won't even be surprising to call others to a life of singleness and celibacy until God changes situations around them. It will be possible because they're carrying their cross as radical disciples alongside us. They're the four walls. They're the things that I think they become cultural within us, our norm, Then we can hold up well this beautiful plan that God has for sex and sexuality. Just to want to end, uh, I know we're about quarter past, just a couple of motivations for me. I, who do I think about when I'm thinking about these things? I'm thinking about the couple that came to our house for dinner last week who are living in a homosexual lifestyle, two guys, One of them showed some interest. He seemed to know the contemporary church scene in London. There may be some warmth there. We're just getting to know them. And we pray and and trust that we'll have opportunity to share something of our faith. And I pray and I I, want to pray that God will rescue them and save them. They'll come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. But then I want to be able to say, come and see this kind of church. Come to a church like this, where they will help you change your lifestyle to be fitting as a disciple of Jesus, which is going to be costly and painful for them. I want to be able to point to churches like ours. Say, it's, it's possible. You could do this. We're doing it on other things. Uh, I want a kind of church where somebody like Jackie Hill Perry could come. Jackie Hill Perry, I was reading her testimony this week. She was living in a lesbian relationship. She was very rebellious about the faith of her parents until the moment that God broke into her life and gave her such a revelation of God's love and of God's holiness. She committed her life to Jesus right there and then. And then she worked it out very quickly. She ended her lesbian relationship. And she said, the same-sex attraction feelings, they haven't gone away. I want to be a church where she is able to come in and know support and know grace and know encouragement 
and be able to just be a disciple alongside the rest of us. Yeah? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we do thank you for this morning, for all the elements of it, and we thank you for this series we're looking at, or even though, Lord, it's making us a little bit uncomfortable, Lord, and it's a bit challenging. Heavenly Father, we do firstly just want to thank you that you do have a wonderful plan. You are a good God. You are a loving Father. You do have our best in mind. You have designed something well. And Lord, at times we know we're confused and we can't see it always, but we believe it. We believe your word. We, we sit under it. Lord, I want to say sorry for the way I naively, ignorantly, unintentionally have been unhelpful to others in helping, not helping them see this as good news in their walk with Christ. And Lord, I pray for your help. Holy Spirit, help us as a church to grow, to change, to, to be able to hold up this plan. Lord, I do pray that in this church would be a culture of love, one to another, like Jesus loved. I pray, Lord God, that we would be great at finding our identity in Christ and in God and encouraging others to do the same. Lord, I pray for a strong culture of discipleship in this church, where we're not just learning stuff, but Lord, it's shaping us. And there's a smell, and there's a smell about us, partly of death and partly of life. I pray, Lord God, we'll be a church like that, a church of community, a church of family, a church where we know one another. And we grow together and enjoy family life together. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.